Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest today is Edward Isaac Dover. Isaac is a staff writer for The Atlantic and author of the new book, Battle for the Soul, Inside the Democrats' Campaign to Defeat Trump. Last night, I congratulated Donald Trump and offered to work with him on behalf of our country. She's actually wondering, you know, there's this rise of populism happening around her. She doesn't quite understand it. She's talking to an advisor while flying on an airplane and saying, I don't really understand what's happening. I can't quite grasp what's going on around me. And I think that was actually very emblematic of the problem. Tonight, we are gathered to reclaim the soul of America. Joe Biden is now officially the Democratic nominee. What stood out to you after two days of this convention? Well, it seems the Democratic Party has finally settled on a strategy to beat Donald Trump. I'm Isaac Dover, and I'm fighting to get out the truth of all the things that are happening in this crazy country of ours. Sorry, not sorry. Okay, Isaac, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Let's just get right into it. You start the book at the very end of the Clinton campaign as President Obama is receiving reports of her defeat to Donald Trump. It seems like the realization of that defeat was slow in coming. What was it and why was it such a surprise to people on the inside? I think it was a surprise to people on the inside for a lot of the reasons that it was a surprise to people on the outside, right? Like that Donald Trump could be elected president of the United States. I wasn't surprised. Then you were ahead of the curve from where Obama was. (laughs) You know why? Because I just felt like, as Democrats often do, we get really wonky about things. And here is this guy, this television personality that came out and just said, we're going to make America great again. Nobody knew what that meant, but it was like, as someone in the entertainment industry, I was like, that right there wins votes. You were onto something. I remember two days after the election, I was one of the pool reporters, a small group of reporters that gets pulled into small events. And so I was in the Oval Office when Trump came to see Obama. It was just a weird day at the White House. I can't even imagine. (laughs) And they were supposed to meet for like 20 minutes, maybe half an hour. They ended up meeting for 90 minutes. And there wasn't anybody like who could knock on the door and say like, are you guys done yet? Right? Like that conversation you don't interrupt. And so they had the reporters gathered outside of the Oval Office in the colonnade of the White House, like right next to the Rose Garden for a while, thinking like, they'll tell us when they're done. (laughs) And the staff was waiting just like we were. And we saw Dennis McDonough, Obama's chief of staff then, take a walk with Jared Kushner. And we saw Dan Scavino, Trump's like Twitter maven, former golf caddy guy, who was just walking around the Rose Garden taking pictures. Everything was just so bizarre. And there was a reporter who I hadn't seen for a while because she had been out on the campaign trail covering Trump. I had mostly covered campaign events through Obama's eyes in 2016. That was my assignment. So I all the stumping that he'd done for Clinton. I was there for that rather than most of the time with Clinton herself into the fall. And I said to her, so you were out there. Would you have believed it? Would you have thought we'd be standing here waiting to see Donald Trump sitting in the Oval Office? And she said to me, no, because she had done a little bit of Clinton coverage also to just shake things up on her beat. And she said she went to an event in Florida and there was almost nobody there for Clinton and the people weren't that enthusiastic. And she said to me, I remember thinking to myself, if this were anyone other than Hillary Clinton, I would say it's a big problem. But I thought, eh, Donald Trump, like, eh, it's not going to happen. And so I kind of wrote it off, but it was making her think about it more that way. And I do think that most smart political people, and I'll emphasize the political people there, looked at Trump in 2016 and thought, this guy is like the worst major party candidate ever. At one point, the Clinton campaign was super excited that he was going to be the nominee. Wow. And the reality that I think we all have to think about is that he was not the worst major party candidate ever. He lost the popular vote, but he was obviously elected president. And he came a lot closer to winning in 2020, even with all the things, uh, telling people to inject bleach and 500,000 people dying and all this stuff. The economy increased... With all of that, you have Biden winning by a lot, 
81 million votes, the most votes anybody in history has ever gotten. Donald Trump got more votes in 2020 than he got in 2016. He got 74 million votes. And the other thing, and I get into this towards the end of the book and looking at how the votes moved at the end, but if you flipped 77,000 votes between four states, combined 77,000 votes, then even if Biden had won 7 million votes more in the popular vote, Trump would have won the Electoral College. And constitutionally, he'd be president right now. Okay, let's not go there. (laughs) I know that was a lot for you to take in. (laughs) I want to go back to 2016 for a second. And there seems to have been a split between the Obama and Clinton camps with Obama pushing for concession and Clinton claiming irregularities in Wisconsin that could signal irregularities in Michigan and Pennsylvania. Was that a lesson Trump learned this time around? Did he get that from Clinton? Let's connect those dots. I think if you go back to the last couple of weeks of the campaign in 2016, you can see Trump saying, of course, I'm going to say the election's rigged unless I win. And then it'll be right. We're going to win this election. The only way they can take this election away from us is if this is a rigged election. We're going to win this election. We're going to win this election. His doubts about what was going on preceded anything that Clinton was doing. When Obama pushed Clinton to concede, and he did push hard for her to concede on election night, part of the logic was that he was thinking that Trump had raised so many questions about the election that Clinton couldn't feed that. And that they had to, for the sake of the democracy and the strength of the country, say, this is it. And I talked to Hillary Clinton last fall, and I said to her, looking back, do you feel like Obama pushed you to concede too early? And as any good politician would, she said a lot of words. The answer was yes, but she didn't say the word yes. She said, if you look at all the things, we didn't have a lot of time to think about things. And if the way that things went, Obama pushed, pushed for her to concede. She resisted at first. She finally did. And by the next morning, it was a done deal. Trump was the president-elect. You compare that to what happened, obviously, this past November, when even though it was clear for a long time that Biden was going to squeak it out. It took four days. It was till Saturday for the election to get called. I want to talk a little bit about the role of governing in elections, which seems to have gotten away from us as a nation a little bit. And you are pretty critical of President Obama and his hands-off approach to the party. Where do you think a president or I don't know, any elected official should be looking most. There's the present with the challenges that the office holder has and the future, which got pretty bleak under Obama's presidency. Is there a model for what he should have done differently? It's tough. He had a lot of things on his plate. And he, number one, is not a party guy. You look back at his electoral history, right? He ran for a congressional seat in Chicago in 2000 against a longtime incumbent who's still there, by the way, Bobby Rush. He lost. He got into the Senate race in 2004 as not the expected party guy. And a bunch of things happened in that race. And all of a sudden, he was the nominee and ran away with that race. He runs in 2008 against Hillary Clinton. She's the party establishment type, and he's the one on the outside of it. So he comes into office thinking about all this stuff that's like, that's not me. That's not who I am. That's not where my interests are. He also comes in, of course, with the economic crisis and all the different things that came up starting from day one and not really ending until he said goodbye at the end of Trump's inauguration. But there are things that structurally could have been done that would have put the party in better shape. You look at just some of the numbers, and there are things like gerrymandering that affected this. There are bigger trends that were going on. But there are also almost a 1,000 seats in state legislatures that were held by Democrats when he came in, that were held by Republicans by the time he left. When he came in, the House and the Senate were both Democratic. When he left, they were both Republican. The DNC was a functional organization when he came in and helped get him elected in 2008. And it atrophied from what some of his aides to me called benign neglect. Some of Obama's aides, he didn't really care who the leader of the DNC was. There were problems when Debbie Wasserman Schultz was the DNC chair. And he just was like, I don't really mind. It's not the thing that I'm concerned with. There was a debt that his reelection campaign had run up and they just transfer the debt to the DNC. All these things put the party into worse shape, just realistically. And you go back to 2016 to think about the Trump side of it. 
Trump, look, you're right. There was more appealing to him than most people anticipated. But he also had a lot of the party structure that the Republican National Committee, the RNC, had built up that if the Democrats had been able to keep up with that, then maybe things would have ended up differently. And how much do you think Cambridge Analytica helped in that? Because when I looked back, Hillary talked a lot about data being outdated and that she didn't have current data. What do you think that meant? This brutal campaign heralded a new era in political warfare in which social media is the crucial battleground, fueled by vicious personal attacks, funded by billionaire mega donors and targeted with pinpoint accuracy. And one British company claims it was responsible for mastering this new field, paving the way for Trump's victory. Kansas, Louisiana, Texas. Cambridge Analytica. It meant that the DNC itself got lapped by the RNC in building voter information and thinking about how to dig in on people. That was within the DNC and the RNC itself. But then there was Cambridge Analytica, which is a very well-run company. (laughs) They're very good at what they do. And there was not really a Democratic equivalent. And what we saw is if you go back and look at what happened in 2016 with obviously the disinformation that was being put out and the things that have been rooted back to the Russians, that's all going on. But there's also just like completely above boards data mining and ways of appealing to people through Facebook and getting them jazzed up about whatever the Trump campaign wanted them to be jazzed up about that just wasn't happening. There are a lot of things that I get into in the book of the immediate aftermath of Trump's win and things like the rise of grassroots activism, how the Women's March came about. But one of the things that is in there is there's this dinner of a couple of people, most of whom are not at all household names. It's held at John Podesta's house. Podesta had been Clinton's campaign chair. And he cooks dinner for them and they're sitting around the table. And Randy Weingarten, who's the head of the teachers union, she's a very committed Democrat. And she's saying to him, we have to figure out the data problem here. We need to catch up. So Yes, there are lots of things that went into the Democrats coming back to the extent that they didn't come back and have come back here. But there was a big piece of it of Democrats saying, like, we have to get better at this. And then you look at what happened over the course of the last four years when Tom Perez was the DNC chair, when Trump was president. And a lot did change that improved the operations, but also a lot changed that was more sophisticated for people who were supporting Democrats who were not in the DNC. There was just a totally different approach to this. And it helps these folks catch up with the way that the RNC, again, I remember, Alyssa, going to an RNC briefing. It must have been the spring of 2015. And they were showing us some of the things that they were doing. And they were like, look, we're much better than the DNC. And I brought it back to some people who worked at the DNC. And they're like, oh, they always say that. They don't know. They think that they're doing well. I don't think I wrote an article about it because I'm not sophisticated enough about this stuff to know what's a better data mining (laughs) program versus what's not. But the RNC was right and the DNC was wrong. Season two of Swing Left's How We Win is here. We have an incredible opportunity to fight for our democracy. We don't agonize, we organize. And we've got a lot of work to do. Subscribe right now on Apple and everywhere you get your pods for insight, action, and your reasons for hope. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is season season two of How We Win. It's so funny because even from someone that campaigned, I've been campaigning since the 2000 election, but like phone banking is kind of my thing. And just the difference between Obama the first time he ran and the phone banking and the numbers that we had being super accurate versus Hillary and whatever database they were working at, where it felt like, and I'm not even exaggerating, 98% of the numbers that we were calling were out of date, disconnected, the person didn't live there anymore. And I was like, I feel like I'm not reaching anybody right now. So when she came out, that first interview she did, 
I think it was at a college. She did some sort of symposium and she had said that she felt like the data wasn't up to date. I was like, oh yeah, I feel that way too because <laughs> just being someone that is involved in the political process that loves to phone bank, it was really frustrating. You're getting at something that I think is essential here that people often forget about politics. One of the first races I covered was a city council race in New York and a guy was running and he had been endorsed by Mario Cuomo. And I said to him, how'd you get endorsed by Mario Cuomo? It doesn't make any sense. Do you know him? He said, no. He said, I called him up. I asked to go to his office. I made my case to him. And he said, okay. And he endorsed me. And then like a year later, there was another race where that councilman, then he won, endorsed one candidate race versus another candidate in another race. And I said, why'd you do that? And he said, oh, the other person never called me to ask. I don't know. Like politics can be about so many big things, but you have to ask people to vote for you. You have to give them a reason to vote for you. I'm sure when you call people, if you tell them who you are, then they're excited that you're on the phone. But they're excited when anybody calls because it's nice to have that connection. Hello? Hi, is this Alyssa? It is. Hey, Alyssa, this is Barack Obama. I used to be the president, you remember? I Yes. <laughs> so I am doing phone banking for Joe Biden, and you're one of the people I'm calling. Oh, my gosh. How are you doing? I'm having, I'm having a panic. Don't, uh-oh. All I want to do is to remind you that Election Day is Tuesday, and this is going to be a really close election, and I'd love for you to vote for Joe Biden and Kamala and... If you don't know your polling location, I can give it to you and give you any information that you need. Fast forwarding here a little bit, but one of the things that Joe Biden said to me, there are two interviews with him in the book. One was a week before Trump's inauguration, sitting with him in the vice president's office. It's like three doors down from the Oval Office. And the other one was at the beginning of February of this year. So he's been president for about two weeks. And he was in the Oval Office at that point. I was over the phone because it was still COVID restrictions. And he made a very similar point, which is that Democrats had stopped speaking to people in ways that mattered to them. And he was talking more meta than phone banking. But you have to give people a way to connect. And Biden is good at making people feel that way. But what he said in 2017 was Democrats just stopped talking to all these people and it allowed for the voters to move away and not be connected anymore. And he started going off on this. And I said to him, again, this is January 2017, you know, that sounds like a stump speech. And he said, no, 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 maybe a stump speech for someone else. Of course, as president, he says a very similar thing. He said to me, Democrats stopped talking to these people. They looked for an explanation. They looked for somebody to be talking to them. And that allowed Trumpism to come in. And that allowed them to go to Charlottesville. And he says there's a direct line from Charlottesville to January 6th. I think that's true. And I also think that the Democratic Party was very bad at keeping up with the left-leaning ideology that was shifting because you had the rise of people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And there was this whole other part of the Democratic Party. I felt a lot more advocacy driven. And the DNC just never seemed like they cared. Yeah, I think that they didn't realize what was going on. I think a lot of people didn't. But if you look back at 2016, right, who are the surprise candidates who take off? Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. What do they have in common? Almost nothing. Polar <laughs> opposite ends of the spectrum. Right. They're both men in their 70s who are originally from New York. But what they had is that people felt like they were talking to them. And they were saying, we get it. I think a lot of people in 2016, like going into it, just felt like we're being fucked. Yeah. Nobody cares. Right. Like we're just being fucked over. And at least Bernie Sanders is talking to it. And at least Donald Trump is talking to it. I may not agree with everything that they have to say, but they feel it and they're responding to it and they want to do something about it. Towards the prologue of the book, and the prologue is all about election night 2016, Obama is trying to figure this out himself. Again, surprised that Trump wins. And he sends some of his aides to Iowa to go do a focus group with the Obama-Trump voters, these people who voted for Obama in 2008 and 2012, but then voted for Donald Trump in 2016. I know that 
that probably sounds like, who are these people, right, to you? (laughs) But there are a fair amount of them. And in Iowa, Obama loves Iowa. I think seven counties flipped from being pro-Obama to being Trump from 12 to 16. And they go and they're asking these people, why? What's the deal? And a lot of them say, yeah, like, I don't think Trump's a nice guy. I don't really like him. But there's a, a woman who says, we sent Obama to get stuff done. And they wouldn't let him do it. And so now we need to send Trump to do it. It's that feeling. I think we're feeling that feeling now with the dysfunction. You know, I feel like we sent Biden to get certain things done. And it feels like the way McConnell is blocking everything. We can't even agree on equal pay. Are you kidding me? Like this morning when I woke up, we're recording this on June 9th, and I woke up to the news that the bill for equal pay didn't pass. Republican senators succeeded once again in using the legislative filibuster to block the passage of the Paycheck Fairness Act. Now, the legislative filibuster would require, of course, 60 senators to vote in favor of any piece of legislation, which is incredibly difficult to do when the Senate has a 50-50 split among Democrats and Republicans. Kamala Harris serves as the tie-breaking vote. Now, if you're wondering you know, what the overall vote was on this particular issue, senators voted 49 to 50 Uh, to try to advance the legislation, falling short of the 60 votes needed to overcome the procedural hurdle. Who are we if we can't agree on that? There's an anecdote you share in the book, which I thought was really interesting, around the time of the Parkland shooting. And Obama was on the phone with George Clooney, who was backing March for Our Lives. And Clooney was pushing for support. And Obama responded that he was full on radioactive, and that's a quote, meaning that his involvement would hurt the effort. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that was true? So a couple things on that. First of all, what I tried to do through the book is give you a sense of like, this is what you saw out front and the way that politicians were going about things. And here's actually what was going on behind the scenes. It's sometimes very different. And so Obama is this interesting case. He made a lot of people feel like he was just gone, detached. He didn't care what was happening. He was like windsurfing with Richard Branson or whatever and just gone. But one of the things, yes, he screwed up the things about building the DNC. But he took a lesson from that in the years afterwards. And he invested his time and effort into trying to build up the Democratic Party, trying to talk with candidates. But he knew that he couldn't be out front because it did trigger this reaction and that Trump was always looking for it. Trump wanted to fight with him and he didn't want to give Trump the ammunition. The thing we have to spend the most time on because it's the the thing we have the most control over is... How do we make sure that we are showing up in places where I think democratic policies are needed, where they are helping, where they are making a difference, but where people feel as if they're not being heard, and where Democrats are characterized as coastal, liberal, latte-sipping, you know, politically correct, uh, out-of-touch folks? I think he's right that he was radioactive. You imagine the March for Our Lives with Barack Obama on stage, then it becomes a Barack Obama event. One of the most amazing things that happened over the course of the Trump years politically is what happened the March for Our Lives that did change how people thought about this issue and ways that obviously haven't resulted in major changes to the laws so far. But you look at how many shootings there were leading up to that, how many mass shootings, terrible, and they didn't connect with people in the way that those kids did and what they were able to mount did. And the story of Clooney and what he did with it is, I think, really interesting. You see how people can be really active behind the scenes, but he's talking with Obama and taking advice, but one of the decisions that was made is not just that Obama would be offstage, but that Clooney would be offstage, that basically almost all of the famous people would be offstage and really make it about the kids so that it didn't feel political. And I think that that's another thing to take away and how to think about what connects with people is that it's great when famous faces and names get involved and sometimes it can have a really important effect on people's lives. But when sometimes that also creates a feeling of like, that's just what it's about. And when they see the politicians up on stage, that's just what it's about. And so much of what happened over the course of the last four years for Democrats was about 
people rising up on their own. Citizen activism. It's so important, and it has changed the world so many times. Just on the Women's March, I went to the Women's March in D.C. to cover it. I got out of the train at Union Station, and I never got even within sight of the stage because there were so many people. It was just overwhelming how many people were there. And there's a quote from Cecile Richards, who was at Planned Parenthood at the time, and she said, if an organization had tried to make the Women's March happen on its own, the amount of time and money it would have taken, it never would have been like that. And it just happened spontaneously. And I think that's a real testament to what activists were able to do, what people just taking politics into their own hands were able to do. I want to talk about gun violence a little bit more because Joe Biden has taken a much more active stance on gun violence in his presidency. Obviously, it's something he's been focused on for years in the book and in the real world. We hear a lot about his compassion and his empathy that the loss of his family seems to have fostered in him. How big of a factor do you think that was in his decision to get into the race and his ultimate nomination? I mean, I think it's huge to just go back to the March for Our Lives for a second and how this played in. There's a moment in the book that I have of him the day before the march. They brought the kids to Capitol Hill to go meet with their representatives. And the organizers thought, okay, who do we bring in? Who's like the speaker that we could have here in this moment? And they bring Joe Biden in. They bring him in because they know he's obviously a big-time politician. They know that he spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill, but also that he can connect on grief. So many people can't. And... I was actually just reading it over last night because he did a surprise video remarks to the Parkland kids this week. And what he says to them in March of 2018, he says, so many people are going to say to you, I know how you feel. They don't know how you feel. He said, what you've gone through, nobody knows how you feel. And you're going to want to scream sometimes when people say, I know how you feel. And he says, I know how you feel. I was there. I've been through it. And You know, he talked about some of the things that he often says publicly that are a little bit less raw than that. The line that I've heard him say many times is, there will come a point where the memory of your loved one doesn't bring a tear to your eye, but a smile to your face. That's the public consumption thing. He was talking to kids who had seen their classmates killed, and many of them killed in front of them, survived it themselves. And I think that that compassion comes off of him, people just know that that's part of who he is. They connected with him again over it when his son Bo died in 2015. It sort of reminded people of the story. It's crazy. Nobody would believe it as a novel. Just weeks after being elected one of the youngest senators in U.S. history, Biden was in Washington setting up his office when tragedy struck. My brother Jimmy Biden called and said, Val, come home. It's been a really bad accident. I said, how how bad? He said, come home. Biden's family was driving home after picking out a Christmas tree when their station wagon was struck by a tractor trailer. My most vivid memory of that day is walking out of the Russell Senate office building because no one was there. And I, I remember hearing, it's all marble, it's cavernous, and just hearing our footsteps. And uh, he looked at me and he's, He said, she's dead, isn't she? It's a terrible story. And of course, one of those boys is Bo. I mean, I remember I wrote a story. It was Memorial Day week in 2015 when Bo died. And the beginning of the story is something like, to so many people, he's Uncle Joe, and his son's death feels like a death in the American family. And that's what it felt like then. That's the way it connected with people. And that carried him through. But it was more than that. The night before the South Carolina primary, when he knew that he was going to do well, but he didn't know he was going to do as well as he did do. He was at a college campus in the northern part of South Carolina, and it was right before the pandemic hit, and he didn't have Secret Service protection on him yet. So I could be still very up close to him. And I was eavesdropping on his conversations because they were always so interesting to hear. As a reporter, that's great stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And there's this moment where there's a woman who's standing there, and she wanted to talk to him. She was clearly so nervous about it that she'd written out what she wanted to say on a piece of paper. And he's got aides who are saying, go ahead, talk to him. It'll be okay. And she gets up to him as he's working the rope line. And she hands him the note, and tears are streaming down her face. She can't even talk. And he holds it up in front of him, like, looking at it. Like, I don't know if he needed his glasses on or whatever. But, it, like, he's holding the paper tight. And he reads it. And he says to her, let's make sure that we have your number. Maybe I can do something to help. Now, I don't know what came of that. But I do know that 
he does follow up with a lot of people. He does. And he also, I think the thing about him that I've learned, and I don't know him well, but he makes you feel seen. And he does that in a really intimate, special way. The last time I saw him was at a fundraiser, like right before he got the ticket. And I was involved without being involved in their campaign. And I did everything I could to help him win. But the last fundraiser I saw, Joe looked at me right in the eye. He gave me a huge hug and he held my hand and he looked me right in the eye and he said, I want you to know that we talk a lot about you in our camp. There's something and the way you told that story that I think is significant in itself, because he's the president of the United States now. And you said, Joe looked at you. Would you have ever said Barack looked at me or Donald or George or no. Bill, right? No. no, it's something different. And obviously, most Americans haven't had that kind of conversation with him or the conversation that woman had with him. But people do get the sense that that's who he is. It comes off of him. It doesn't seem impossible to have that conversation with him. When you look at him, when you hear him, this like calm that he has, I don't know, it's just, it makes you feel better, first of all. Also, I know, and this is something as an activist that is so valuable, I know that he is listening to people in the advocacy, activism, organizing space, and that if he says something or does something and anyone voices that, people who voice that, that are closest to the pain, we know he's going to listen. And I don't think in my activism ever that I felt like we have a guy that the immigration organizations could go to or the GBP organizations can go to and problem solve with. His agenda feels like the people's agenda. And it's special to witness. It was special to be a part of. When you think back in the last 20 years or so, there have been these growing movements on the right. You see the Tea Party and Trump and the craziness of QAnon. And then on the left, you have Sanders and Bernie bros and the squad, which seem to signal a growing split with the establishment. But I wonder how much of this is actually real and how much of this is the narrative of these candidates that they're creating. It's both. And I don't mean that as a cop-out answer. I'm remembering being in San Francisco in the August of 2019, when there was the DNC summer meeting was in San Francisco. And Bernie Sanders came, as a lot of the candidates who were running for president then did. And he gave a speech that was a very typical Bernie Sanders speech, but he didn't attack the DNC which was interesting because that had been his routine for so long. And somebody who worked for the DNC said to me, you see, we've worked to build up that relationship. So not only has there been actual work to build things, but it's been enough work that Bernie Sanders is not going to try to make a political play out of running against it. And you go back to 2016, there was this question of whether there had been DNC data that had been accessed by the Clinton campaign or like Bernie Sanders campaign data. And the Sanders people made an enormous show of it. And you know, it was December of 2015. I remember because the story broke, I was supposed to be going to a Christmas party. And they made a lot of political hay of it because it's great to show, oh, we're fighting against it. And they made that opposition happen, right? This is a major blow to Sanders. His campaign has been suspended, disciplined by the Democratic National Committee after snooping into rival Hillary Clinton's data. The campaign has been suspended by from using the DNC's data system. This news, of course, is coming just a day before the third Democratic debate in New Hampshire. Now, Clinton's data was accessed by at least one of Sanders' staffers after a software error occurred at a technology company that allows the campaigns to access voters' data. I think when you ask about the Trump side of it, too, some of it is real. Trump has made a lot of establishment leader Republicans uncomfortable. But also, like, he was the president of the United States. He does have the majority leader. They sure have embraced him. It was about to say, like, most members of Congress have made themselves completely allegiant to him. He's not really an outsider anymore, but it's good for him to talk about that that way. It almost feels like, as an actor, what you want so desperately is to, like, get on a series and have that stability and have Universal behind you or whatever it is. And then you get on the series and you're like, fuck Universal. <laughs> like, what? And it feels like that, where you're trying to gel with the DNC. And then once everyone's elected, they're like, no, 
fuck you with the data. It was bad data. But imagine if it helped your next contract, like it pushed up your price for people to see that you were fighting with Universal or whatever. And that's kind of what's happening, you know. Speaking of data, again, I just want to touch on this again. After the election, Clinton's campaign manager, Robbie Mook, put together a report suggesting that Clinton and the Democrats misread the data, and that led them to making bad strategic decisions. What do you think? Did they misread the data or did they misread the nation? Both the data is the nation. They should have seen what was happening. There was a theory that the Clinton campaign had, which is like, we're not going to change the minds of anybody about Hillary. So we just have to turn out our voters. But A, they probably could have changed some minds. And B, they didn't identify their voters correctly about who was for Trump and who was for Clinton. There are a lot of stories. Most of the book is about post the 2016 election, but it's about in part, correcting these errors and seeing like union members that you would expect were good Democrats in a lot of places, not all union members, but a lot of blue collar union guys voted for Trump. And the Clinton campaign was counting them as Clinton voters because they assumed that's what they'd always done. They moved to Trump. Those are also people that a lot of them moved to Sanders. Biden succeeded in pulling a lot of them back, not all of them, but a lot. And that is not just something that Biden did. Other people involved in the Democratic Party took that as an effort of what they needed to do to make this happen. I want to for a second just think about what the 2020 election would have looked like if COVID never came into play. What do you think? Did the Democrats really do better, at least at the presidential level? Or was it the tsunami of cultural and societal factors that led to Biden's win? So, yeah, I talked to you about those focus groups that were done with the Obama-Trump voters. The ones I talked to you about before were done around Thanksgiving 2016. There was another set of them that are in the book that I get into that are done right before the 2020 election. Now, there are Obama-Trump voters still, but the subset is that they're undecided about Biden or Trump. And they asked them, what do you make of these people? What do you make of Biden? What do you make of Trump? And basically, this is what came back. They said about Trump, I don't like him. Again, these are people who voted for him in 2016. I don't like him. I do think he knows what to do with the economy. And it's not really fair to him what happened with COVID. It's not his fault. And he's probably the guy who could help the economy get into better shape when we're coming out of COVID. But I don't think he can get us out of COVID. And that's what we need. They looked at Biden. They said, he's a good man. I don't think he knows what's going on with the economy. I'm concerned about that. I don't know what's going on with some of the stuff like defund the police on the left wing of the Democratic Party. Kind of freaks me out. But I do think he could get us out of this. Those voters broke more for Biden than for Trump. And again, to go back to the fact that change 77,000 votes total in four states and Donald Trump is the Electoral College winner... That matters. It mattered also that COVID changed the campaign in the way that it did. In a speech in Lansing, the president suggested his opponents are using the pandemic to make him look bad, a claim that former President Barack Obama seized upon during an appearance for Biden in Florida. It's COVID, COVID, COVID. You can't watch anything else. On November 4th, you won't be hearing so much about it. What's his closing argument? That people are too focused on COVID. He said this. At one of his rallies. I was out on the campaign trail all through 2019 with all the candidates, Biden included, into 2020. Biden was not doing that great as a campaigner in most places. He would stumble. There were times where he was tired, clearly. And I think maybe most importantly, he was never the guy that a lot of people would show up to see at a rally. The first time I saw him in Iowa was the second trip that he took to Iowa. We were in a town called Ottumwa, and there's a theater there that I think the fire department thing says holds like about 800 people. And when we walked in, there was a setup for chairs in a hallway on the side of the theater. And I thought, oh, that's, I guess, where the reporters are going to hang out, you know, where they have for us to type our stories or do the shots or whatever. And then I realized, no, that's the event space that they had picked. They realized that they couldn't fill this theater. And so they had 
80 chairs set out, and they were super excited when they got about 200 people there, and there was it was standing room only. Uh, that's not good enough to win a presidential campaign, and especially if you think about what it would have been like if Trump had been having big rallies all over the country, which he would have been. He always draws a big crowd, and it would have fed this idea that people are more excited for him than for Biden. So there's like the political theater aspect of this that probably would have been in, not in Biden's favor, but I also think that just in general, there were so many issues that popped up over these four years that Trump is president. This is the thing that's going to define the 2020 election. Remember when he got impeached? It's only been <laughs> three times, now four, but at that point, three times that a president's been impeached. And it was like, this is obviously going to change everything. And it was like gone as an issue by November. Everything else was, except for COVID. Because we were all feeling it, no matter who you were, what you were doing, it changed your life. Most of us were sitting at home, obviously not everybody, but even the ones who weren't, it changed our lives. We were all wearing masks. We are all worried we are going to get sick. All these things. We were all feeling, at least in some way, the effect on the economy. My job was intact, but like I could see the stores closing, right? And I could see the pictures of the food lines that were going on. And that made it real to people what government does. And that this was a super entertaining show with Trump as president. But again, to go back to what I was saying about 2016, where people were feeling like, what is this doing for my life? I'm feeling fucked. Like people who were feeling in 2020, like, what are we going to do? How is my life going to get better? There's a Tom Hanks quote in the book from a fundraiser that he did during the Democratic convention that was that sort of mostly virtual convention in August. Which I really enjoyed, by the way. It was fun. And I got to be there for the in-person parts, which were Harris's speech and Biden's speech. Quite honestly, we could do conventions like that in the future. Conventions usually are a little bit too much. But Tom Hanks did a virtual fundraiser. And he says, you know, when you think about it, that all these things landed on an election year public health crisis, the economic crisis, everything that had already been set off by George Floyd and his killing. Hank said that all of that happens in a year when, as a country, we get to decide which direction we're going. And he says, you have to maybe nod to that there's something bigger going on here. And you don't have to agree with Tom Hanks's theology of this. No, it's an interesting perspective. And I do actually agree with it. I, I want to <laughs> talk about the house for a minute before we wrap up. What do you think went wrong there? And are there similar lessons the party needs to learn for 2022 and 2024 to protect a very narrow majority? I think a big issue is when I was talking about those Obama-Trump voters, the 2020 version of people saying that they were a little spooked by some of the defund the police and that kind of rhetoric. The Saturday before the election in November, I was in Miami following around Kamala Harris as she was campaigning. And she kept on saying the beginning of every speech she did, she said, I just want to say Joe Biden and I are both proud Americans. And it seemed like, okay, that's something that politicians say. And then at one point, one of her aides said to me, have you noticed that she's saying that? I said, yeah. And said, we're pushing back on the socialism stuff that's really put in here. They have established the prerequisites to a socialistic or even later a communistic state. This system in simpler terms is called socialism. If fascism ever comes to America, it'll come in the name of liberalism. Public housing is one of the last bastions of socialism in the world. I think his plans of the, our redistribution of the wealth, that's one of the tenets of socialism. America will never be a socialist country. Republicans have been accusing Democrats of socialistic tendencies for as long as socialism has been active in America. And I said, okay, that's like too subtle for me to catch. And I'm like literally being paid to pay attention right, to this To stuff. catch all of it, <laughs> to catch everything. But I do think one of the things that the Democratic Party has to figure out here is that there is a lot of interest in moving toward a more progressive, maybe more democratic socialist policy from a lot of voters, from a lot of younger voters, but not only younger voters and not all younger voters. That is not where a lot of other voters are. And especially when it comes to the swing voters, the couple of 5% in the middle there that Democrats need in order to win these elections, they get really turned off by it. And that's one thing to think about. Another thing, I remember doing a panel in the fall of 2019 in Washington talking about the election. And I said something like, with this big, diverse field, the first of every kind of candidate that was running, all these firsts, I think it would be hard for people to imagine that it could end with an old white guy being the nominee. And everybody in the room laughed. But when you look at the election results, Joe Biden ran ahead 
of almost every Democrat running for any other office last year. And what that means is that, yes, a lot of that was like anti-Trump votes and probably people who voted for president and then didn't vote in the other things. But it also means that there's something about Joe Biden that worked and that connected with people. So can Democrats build the kind of coalition that Biden had a winning coalition out of without Joe Biden there? as he won't be in the 2022 midterms. Whatever happens, he's not on the ballot next year. And can they do it when they're not running against Trump? Because Trump's not going to be on the ballot next year either. He might be in 2024. And then that's a different question. And maybe we'll come back and I'll write another book about it. And you'll have me sometime four years from now to talk about it. Do you think he's going to run in 2024? After 2016, I made a pact with myself to not do predictions. He certainly seems to want to drown out the field for as long as possible. And I think he will run. It looks like what he wants to do is to make sure that if he ran, it would be with a confidence that he would win. And I don't know that he can get that confidence. It's a point that I ended up making about Mike Bloomberg when he ran. One of the reasons why every other time that he had stopped himself from running, he looked at running for president a lot of times. And he stopped because he was like, I can't win. I don't want to be embarrassed in this way. And then in 2020, he all of a sudden decided, oh, I can win. And he got into the race and it didn't go well. (laughs) The chapter in the book that's about him is called A Billion Dollars for Samoa because that's how much he spent and that's the only primary that he won. So you can see like Bloomberg is a really data-driven guy. It didn't work out like he thought it was going to be. So who knows what Trump will do that. But I write at the end of the book that he is somebody who thinks a lot about his public perception, and he was and now is still a loser on the biggest stage of his life. Would he want to be a two-time loser? I don't think so. Yeah, that's a good point. And finally, Isaac, what gives you hope? The book came out on May 25th, and that night, my wife and I went out to dinner. And wasn't the only time that we've been out. We were at one other time, the two of us, during the pandemic. But a couple of weeks ago in Washington, it was warm. People were not wearing masks. Something really simple is like having a nice meal at a nice restaurant that we like. We go back to and not worry, are we going to get sick? Have a glass of wine. It's a simple thing. But at this point, I think we need to not forget how bad everything was and how terrified everybody was. The last proper Biden campaign rally was March 9th of last year. I mean, it was in Detroit and I went to cover it. And it was the rally when Gretchen Whitmer and Kamala Harris both endorsed him and sort of builds to how novelistic this race actually played out. That those two people who ended up being the finalists for the vice presidential pick were endorsed him at the final rally that he had. And they were like squirting hand sanitizer into people's hands as they came in. It was all crazy. And I drove to Cleveland the next day because Sanders and Biden were both supposed to do events there that got canceled at the last minute because the governor was saying it's a public health problem. And I flew home on a flight. It felt like the apocalypse was coming because nobody was at the airport. The woman in Cleveland was like, I'm getting you on a plane home. Don't worry about it. I'll get you there. She switched me on to another airline and it was great. I got home and I went from... Again, one night being at this high school rally where there were a lot of people, big event, Biden, Harris, Whitmer, Cory Booker was there too, a marching band, like the whole thing, to then getting home in this crazy way. And I unpacked my carry-on bag, and then I went to the supermarket and filled it up with canned soup and toilet paper and all the things that we were all freaking out about getting at that point. And to go from that to 15 months or so <laughs> later to just like a simple thing of go out to dinner. I hope that we don't do what human beings always do, which is to push off the things that were hard and sad in our minds. I think that's how we cope. I know that I have spent very little time after Biden was elected, very little time and energy on even reading anything about Trump. I can't go back there. It's triggering for me. Yeah, no, I understand it. And look, when I set out to write this book, I wanted to not have it be another Trump book. And there is very little of Donald Trump in this book, I think on purpose, I think in a way that hopefully will be refreshing to people because he's there as the context for all of it. But it's really this whole story of things that when Trump was blotting out the sun, and that was the only thing anybody could pay attention to, but actually it was a complete revolution of how things worked in the Democratic Party and all these super interesting characters and stories. We talked mostly about Joe Biden, but like Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, all like... Our bench is deep. Yeah, it was a crazy group of people to get into. And I have... All these moments from a lot of the book, what I was doing was they all knew that I was working on this book all along. And so I have all these conversations and moments and reporting from them that they were telling me under the agreement that I wouldn't use it until the spring of 2021. And so you get this window into what was really going on that 
I think tells us a lot about what our politics was and what we all lived through, but also where we're going now and what this Democratic Party is and how it is that like when I interviewed Biden at the beginning of February, he said to me, I'm the most progressive person who's ever been president. How the presidency that he has is not the presidency he was expecting. It's so cool. You're so cool. And you give me hope. Thank you so much for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Alyssa, thanks for having me. This is so great. You know, living in a red state, it's not an uncommon thing for people to say, well, why are you a Democrat? I'm a Democrat because I believe in opening doors of opportunity to as many people as possible. I'm a Democrat because I feel it's important to be able to have choices. I've been a Republican all my life until last February when I decided that the God bless Republican Party had just moved too far off. I know that Democrats push very hard for the post 9-11 GI Bill, which is something that I used when I went to the University of Kansas. There's three things that Democrats support access to, and that's health care, high-quality public education, and fair courts. And they're actively working towards making sure that all citizens have the ability to vote. Donald Trump is crawling out from under the rock the 2020 election dropped on him and is somehow the presumptive frontrunner for the Republican nomination for 2024. What? We can't let his democracy-destroying machine have another chance to hold the reins of power. I don't know that America would ever recover if we do. But to prevent it, to squash Trumpism and all of the horrible things it brings with it, we have to learn the lessons of what got him there in the first place and what it took to beat him. Donald Trump's and Bernie Sanders' candidacies showed us kind of the same thing. People are dissatisfied with a government that has become too concerned with establishment power and less concerned with its constituents. Our party can't just campaign better. It has to govern better. We can't win a united government and let a Joe Manchin stand in the way of good governance. We can't stumble so badly when we have power that the people say, you know what, let the outsider back in. Government is about governing, not campaigning. And it's time for the Democrats to govern before we lose the soul of America. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 